Hey everyone, we're here with episode three of the NRL 22 podcast. And with us today, we have Jacob Bynum of Rifles Only. Jacob, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm Jacob Bynum, Rifles Only. We're located in uh, South Texas. Uh, We also have facilities in New Hampshire as well as Northern Colorado. Uh, We've been at this for a minute and uh, just really, really glad to be here talking to you today, Ruth. Yeah, I'm excited to be here as well. And so when you say a minute, for those who don't know or are unfamiliar, how, how long have you guys been doing the training? Uh, since, the, since the 90s. Yeah, so a, a hot minute then. We'll say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been at it for a while. I got the, uh, I got the uh, sun lines and everything on my face to show the time on the range, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so for those who aren't aware, I actually went down and took a fire training class at Rifles Only with Jacob. And I, I keep making jokes. I've taken two classes now with them and both times I've, I've gotten sunburned on the first day. So you'd think someone like myself from Minnesota where we don't get as much sun, I'd know how to use sunscreen properly, but evidently that is not the case. <laughs> so it's just yeah, a tradition. By the, time, by the time you think about it, you're already busy. So you just keep on with what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. No, but it was a really good time. And um, I know I learned a lot in my time there, which is one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on this podcast for the NRL 22 community, uh, was to talk about um, fundamentals and, you know, what are they and, you know, why are they so important? Because I know that's something that I learned a lot of when, when I came down. Oh, where to start? (laughs) Where to start? um, well, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, that every, everything has fundamentals. Every action is going to have fundamentals. And it's like whenever a long time ago, whenever we picked up a rock and we were going to throw that rock at a rabbit so that we could eat it, um, you know, they figured out, okay, if I put my feet like this and I go overhand and I do this, they, these were the development, this is where fundamentals started. Um, and of course they've been obviously goes into any other type of, of shooting sports, you know, if it's archery or handgun, carbine, precision rifle, it doesn't really make a difference. Hell, if you're going to play tennis, there's fundamentals. You know, if you're going to have golf, there's fundamentals. If you're going to play basketball, there's fundamentals. And uh, you you can get to where you're pretty good at it, uh, but if you don't get the fundamentals down, I mean, stone cold solid, you're never, ever really going to be great at it. And so that's why, that's why we place such a high importance on the fundamentals of marksmanship. Absolutely. And I, I found out, you know, during my first class that I was doing a few things wrong, which was really helpful. And in a short period of time, I was able to turn that around. So I, I find, you know, taking a class like yours um, or some of the other ones that are out there and really understanding what things you're doing correct or incorrect are helpful because someone can tell you, like, I, I think I mentioned this on our first podcast, you know, slapping the trigger. Someone had told me that I was slapping the trigger before. And until I took the class, I had no idea what that meant. You know, to me, slapping the Mm -hmm. trigger would be hitting it hard. Well, for me, it was, I was letting off the trigger too early was the problem. And so without someone bringing that to your attention and explaining it in a way that you understand, it's really hard to make corrections and adjustments for that. So I know if I'm not following through properly, uh, not taking the time and following through on my trigger pull, uh, you know, I'll miss high. uh, And now it's come to the point where if I miss and I see where I miss, I have to think about, okay, did I follow through? And, and most of the time that's why. So it's really a, really an interesting concept uh, to make sure that you're following through with those fundamentals. 
Yeah. And that's the thing too, you know, whenever you're, whenever you're talking about trigger issues, you, know, you typically have stuff that's going off in the horizontal format. Sometimes it goes vertical, but you know, as it relates to, as it relates to center fire versus rim fire, you know, the thing about it is, is, you know, when our center fire weapons now, you know, we're typically, you know, six, five Creedmoor, six millimeter Creedmoor. I just had a 22 Creedmoor barrel spun up for my, my ATX for Mattress International. And, um, you know, we're dealing in that 2,800 foot per second environment. And so you have to understand that, you know, the follow through is super, super important with center fire, but even more so with 22, because now we're in that thousand foot per second environment. So essentially the bullet staying in the bore three times as long for a 22 as it is for a center fire. So you, 22 is a great equalizer. You know, it, it's going to let you know really quick. Um, I first, you know, we started, of course, all of us have been shooting 22 since we were kids. And, you know, that's what we grew up on and everything else. But whenever we started to formalize the, the 22 Academy here at Rifles Only, you know, I'd gotten in some pretty high speed 22s, you know, so that the students could use them if they needed them and everything else and went out and, you know, set up the thing at 50 yards, you know, just shooting five and 10 round groups. And uh, man, just dumping one bullet right on top of the other. And I said, you know what, let me, let me start deliberately screwing up the fundamentals just to see what would happen. Boy, that 22 will set you straight in a big hurry. I mean, if you're not doing everything right, it's going to let you know. And so that, that's why I, I really appreciate doing the 22 classes. And I, I appreciate how um, that little bitty bullet can humble you right down. Yes, it definitely can do that. And some days it certainly does, at least for me. So as you're working with people and you're looking through fundamentals and things like that, things that impact people's ability to, to shoot smaller groups, um, a lot of our sport is focused on gear. It's focused on ammo, especially in the rimfire world. You know, ammunition definitely plays a part. What's your philosophy or thought process around, you know, the fundamentals and focusing on training versus focusing on gear? Well, uh, I can give you tons and tons of examples of, uh, people that have come to a course here at Rifles Only and some people who have even come to competitions. And um, <laughs> one just really, really uh, struck me. It happened about a year and a half ago. And the, I didn't know, I didn't look at the class list, you know, who was coming or anything else. I just knew that there was gonna be, there was gonna be 10 people in the class and I didn't even look at who was coming. And so I come out in the morning and then people start to drive in and this guy comes up and he introduces himself. And I had a little fanboy moment <laughs> because this guy is absolutely famous in the precision rifle world. Um, you know, it, 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 army shooter um, and absolutely famous, you know, not only for what he's done with the precision rifle, but just what he, what he was able to accomplish in his, you know, uh, career in the army. And, um, you know, he's shooting a gun that was really, I mean, it was state of the art 15 years ago, Ruth, you know what I mean? It was, it was a top loader, you know, I mean, it was, it, I mean, it wasn't magazine fed a 10 power scope. And then everyone else in the class was shooting these, these Ferraris, you know what I mean? They were shooting the, you know, custom actions or accuracy international with, you know, the, the, the nice scopes on them, you know, I can name scopes there. Well, you know, <laughs> we go through the class and, you know, I learn a lot every time I, I teach a class, you know, I, I learn it from every student and, you know, hopefully they can learn from me as well. But this guy, literally, I mean, older guy, and he just smoked everyone in that class. And at the end of, at the end of our PR one and two class, we have a, a little competition. It wasn't even close. I mean, he took 
he took, I mean, he polished the floor with second place's pants. It was, it was insane. But this guy, he knew the fundamentals down so well. It, it, you know, there's a lot of things that you can say about it. You know, it's, it's not the arrow, it's the Indian, you know, and stuff like that. But, and, and that's true. That is really true. But it, it was a real, a real vivid reminder that uh, one, beware of the guy who just has one gun or girl in this, in, in any case. And it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. I was just, I was just so shocked and amazed, you know, at how well he, he, he was able to shoot. And it just, just let me know, Hey, you don't, you don't have to have the latest and greatest, you know, it's nice. You know, it's a hell of a lot nicer. I mean, now the weapons that we have are, are multi-adjustable, you know, for cheek piece, length of pull, you know, the Picatinny rails on top, that wasn't always the case. And so for him to take a gun, like I say, the state of the art 15, 20 years ago and really make it walk and talk. It kind of kind of puts a fear of God into you just on those fundamentals. You better learn them because that's where it's at. Yeah, definitely. And having access to the latest and greatest, I think, is helpful, you know, especially when it comes to like glass quality. So your ability to see what's happening downrange and things like that. But to your point, having the ability to pull the trigger properly, set a good position, get stability in there. Those things, I think, are on a personal level more important than having the latest and greatest in terms of equipment. So I, I think that we as shooters sometimes get excited about, you know, the newest things out there and what can I tweak about my setup to make things better, easier for me. But if we spent as much time and energy into, you know, the training piece of things or bettering ourselves, I think we might be better off as competitors. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Now, a lot of the stuff that that's out there, you know, there's been a lot of innovation um, but you bring up, you bring up glass, you know, on the scopes themselves. Um, you know, one of the fundamentals of marksmanship is sight picture, you know, and we've been going over this so much lately. And now on a modern scope, man, the, the, it's hard to find one. I mean, it, it, you could list off a bunch of scopes to me right now, and you would be hard pressed for me to find one. I don't like, you know, it's just like, they're, they're come, they're so good, you know, across the board, they're so good. And you don't really have to go out and spend, you know, the, the super top dollar either, you know, to have a really good scope. And I, I always bring it up, you know, that I don't know it, this one, the, the technology that's come along with scopes, you know, with the eye boxes that are so clear, the glass that is so clear, the reticles that we have, the parallax knob. I mean, you know, that there used to be scopes that didn't have parallax knobs on them. You know, they just <laughs> didn't exist. And so, you know, you have to solve that with, you know, really consistent cheek weld and things like that. But with the scopes now, I mean, it's almost taking that fundamental out of your hands. You know, if you can go in and get that set up for you, set up your ocular lens, set it up for the proper eye relief, you know, you can adjust everything out. The, the light transfer in scopes and modern scopes now is, oh man, it's, it's, it is <laughs> orders of magnitude different from whenever we first started out. So yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, for sure. I think to your point, once you get past there's, there's the very, very base level, um, product out there in terms of scopes. But once you get past that initial level, I, I'm hard pressed to find a difference either. I can, I can definitely tell in some of the very, very base models, but beyond that, which is why I, I do recommend, um, if people are in the base class, the first thing that they do when they move into open class, instead of worrying about the rifle, because most of the rifles are super, super accurate at, I, I tell people to upgrade their glass first because then they can start to see bullets more. They'll get that wider field of view. So the 34 millimeter tube instead of 30 millimeter, for instance, which to me, I, I've noticed a, a difference. But in terms of, 
you know, quality, once you kind of get out of that very basic $300 to, to $450 range, I mean, to your point, there's not a lot of, of restriction there in terms of what you can see in that scope lens. So it's yeah, a lot of you, personal sure wouldn't, preference. you wouldn't want, yeah, you wouldn't want somebody to say, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go to this match or I'm not going to go to this training simply because I don't have a $4,000 scope, you know, I mean, it, yeah, go absolutely not necessary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And you know, the, you know, Vortex has done a real good job with that. You know, some of their, their least, I'm, I'm not going to say lower quality. I'm going to say less expensive scopes. And we've seen them come through here and get literally beat to hell and they still run like crazy. And they're not the only ones, you know, they're not the only product out there. I've just seen a lot of those and uh, you know, just it, it's good quality equipment, you know, and it's not, that's not going to be your limiting factor for sure. Yeah, definitely. We're living in the golden age of rifle equipment right now. It feels like to me, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. are living in the golden age. Yeah. I was, I was able to, to pick up one of the new accuracy international ATX rifles for centerfire. And, um, uh, I'm in love. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's fun. Yep. Year is definitely fun, but I wanted to make sure that we covered, you know, the importance of the fundamentals over spending the money on the gear. The spending the money on the gear is something we all kind of enjoy doing, I think, but not necessary, especially if you're starting out. Yeah, for sure. What's the biggest or most common mistake that you see new shooters making as you're teaching? Um, as it relates to what gear fundamentals, where you want me to go with that? All of the above. Okay. So the, the number one thing that you see people doing that they shouldn't be doing or, or worrying about that they shouldn't be worrying about. Um, what, what I'm seeing that they're not doing that they should do is get training. That's, that's the main thing. Get training. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're shooting, you know, uh, an RPR. It doesn't matter if you're shooting, you know, um, a cross. It doesn't matter if you just, if the only gun that you have is a rifle. It's like, I mean, a hunting rifle. Like if you, if you come down to a class at rifles only, and I've done this, you know, so many times, you know, a student comes in and they come in with gear that is not going to be conducive for them to shoot well. Well, we have a plethora of rifles for them to choose from. You know what I mean? And I think every, you know, quality school out there does, you know, they have that so that they can come in and kind of see what's going on. Come and get training first. That way you can spend time with the other shooters in the class. And I mean, we've had people come in with guns and you see a guy comes in, hey, do you mind if, can I play with your gun a little bit? I've never heard them answer no. You know, they always, it's always yes, absolutely. How much ammo do you want? Shoot it as much as you want. So people can kind of get an idea of what they want before they go out and buy a bunch of stuff. And then they come to a class and find out that's not what they needed. You know, it's not what they wanted to do. It wasn't, you know, the, the, the courses that people come to, especially at Rifles Only, we're, we're fundamentals. You know, that's what we do. But there's so much time spent to where the students can see the other equipment, you know, see what they can get by with. And, Listen to the other guys, you know, how they've gone off and made errors and, and bought gear that they really didn't need. And so as it turns out, if you come to do that, I mean, yes, it's an outlay of money. You know, Rifles Only is a, a for-profit organization. You have to pay me to come shoot here. Um, but on the other hand, I think that you save a lot of money as well, simply because of the fact that you're going to go in and see what's going to work, what's not going to work. You might have some preconceived notions about it, and you can kind of dispel those. Um, we do the course. Uh, we do all the training with the fundamentals, you know, all the different positions, you know, short, uh, strong side, support side, you, you've been here. But then at the end, we do a little competition too, you know, so that you can kind of get an idea. Oh, okay. Well, all right. This is, this is, this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. Right. Definitely. And I, I completely agree. And in the rimfire world with 22 matches, especially, I know 
Justin, myself, we always have loaner rifles available at our matches mm-hmm. for people to try out. The monthly matches are a good place for people to just show up um, and get started and kind of dip their toes in the water, see if it's something that they like. So if you don't have the right equipment or you're not sure you want to go out and spend all the money, show up at a match, call the match directors in advance. There's loaner rifles available, very similar to what Jacob described, are available at his class. And we highly, highly recommend that people borrow equipment. Um, we've never heard anyone say no either at a match to us. We've only had shooters, you know, say, hey, if anyone needs a loaner, let me know. I have an extra. I'll bring my backup gun. They can use that. And the ammo, uh, too, people are very generous about. So I think that's a really good point for people to take, too, especially if you're just getting started in this area. Show up and reach out and ask about loaner rifles. Ask about uh, equipment that you can borrow and try and, you know, save that money Um, because to your point, you know, you, you might think about how much money you're going to spend on a training session, for example, especially if you're traveling for that training. But the return on investment on things like that is is exponential um, and the savings that you're going to have in the long run, knowing what you need to run or what what you actually need for your setup versus, you know, throwing money at it, I think is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. As far as the other mistakes, and it's kind of covered in there too, you know, that the equipment coming to a class, but also coming to the class to get a really good, you know, solid foundation on the fundamentals of marksmanship. It, it really does shorten your learning curve as well, no matter what you're shooting. You know, if it turns out that, you know, you're a really, really budget-minded shooter, um, man, really good fundamentals can make up a lot of that. No question. Absolutely. I, I found that to be true. My skill went up exponentially after I took the class and spent some time. I mean, the first, even strong side versus support side, um, there was one match that I, I knew I was going to run one stage <clears throat> fully support side. And I spent probably 15 minutes dry firing it. And prior to this, I had always struggled to get my eye box in order. But after we took the class and we spent equal times focusing on both, I just spent a little bit of time trying to figure out why I wasn't getting my, you know, face into the right position on the cheap piece. And during a dry fire session, it all of a sudden clicked for me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like a month after the class. And then I, I dry fired it once went into the match the next day and I cleaned the stage and it was, I think a 10 position stage uh, weak side. So for me, I'm sorry, support side, there is no weak side. So right. for me, that was a huge learning point where, you know, there's these little things that you don't consider or think about and you feel like you're struggling. And when you're, when you're doing that learning by yourself and you're trying to figure it out, or you're doing it on the clock only, you don't have that full picture of what's happening. Right. So I can't seem to find the target. Well, I, I don't realize that I've limited my view box, you know, by 60% because I'm not getting my face into the right location to see through my scope clearly. Well, of course, I'm not going to find targets when I only have 30% of the, the scope that I'm actually able to see through. So those types of things are, are huge and you don't realize them until you take a second to slow down and start thinking about it. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up a really good point too. And what, what you're talking about whenever you start, start first time to go shoot support side, um, what happens is you've been shooting strong side for so long that you've built the neural pathways, you know, to where you can approach that rifle. And whenever you put that rifle to your cheek, you have a full field of view and everything else. And I always, I always compare it to this. Um, if you want to know something, an example of what a neural pathway is for you right-handers out there, 
before you go to bed tonight, <laughs> get some safety glasses and brush your teeth with your left hand. You're going to need the safety glasses. And the reason is, is you just haven't done it before or very little. Maybe you broke a hand sometime at some point, but you had to use it. But the more you do it, the more it gets better. Because now we'll go up and, I mean, think about it. You're brushing your teeth with your right hand. Your mind is going a million miles an hour. You're thinking about the day or thinking about the next day or thinking about, you don't even think about it. Well, try it with your left hand. You're going to have to concentrate pretty hard just to make sure that you don't poke yourself in the jaw with the end of the toothbrush. But that is an example of what a neural pathway is. And so if you don't have those neural pathways built on your support side, it's not the end of the world. You can build those neural pathways on the other side. It's, it's interesting. I had a private instruction a couple of weeks ago. A guy was in here and we were talking about horses. And he says, you know, training horses. And whatever you train a horse to do to the right, you have to train them to do to the left because there's not that connection there. And Ruth, we ain't that different from a horse. And so <laughs> once we get that figured out, and someone says, oh, well, I just can't get my eye relief. And I, I, I say, okay, come here and just look at me. All right. Your face pretty much looks the same on the right as it does the left. It's just you don't have the neural pathways built on that left side or in, in the case of a left-handed shooter on the right side. And it, it comes with time. Uh, Lindy Sisk, who's been with me teaching classes down here for 18 years, um, whenever he first came in, the first time he had ever shot support side was at rifles only. And he knew that as a weak point. And so what he did is he got an eye patch and he put it over his dominant eye and he would wear that eye patch, not while he was shooting, but while he was doing other things. And what that did was force his non-dominant eye to start taking in information and feeding it to the brain. Well, from there, he just started shooting support side constantly. And then, I mean, even, you know, and it happened really quick. He got to where he was equally proficient, both sides. And then now if we're doing a class and at the end of the day, everybody's gone home and Lindy says, Hey, I'm going to go out to the tower and do some shooting. All right. Yeah. Let me know when you come back, you know, we'll, we'll have dinner or something. And I'll ask him, I'll say, Hey, Lindy, did you shoot from the right or from the left? And he literally doesn't know. He can't remember. It's, it's like, uh, it, it is so ingrained to him for both sides. And I mean, Everyone should do that, you know, for a multitude of reasons. But what the fundamentals of marksmanship are about neural pathways. And that's just another neural pathway that needs to get built. Uh, you start shooting alternate positions. The first time you do it, even on your strong side, your wobble, it, it just, it's so overwhelming. I mean, it's so um, intimidating. But the more you get into those positions and you do it over and over and over and over, what happens is those neural pathways get built. And the next thing you know, your wobble is not even off the target. And then it gets to where there truly is no wobble. And it's, but if the only time that you're shooting alternate positions is whenever you go to a match, good luck to you because it's not going to come. You know, you have to be able to do that. Like we, I was, whenever I was up there with you guys last year uh, in August, you know, meeting Troy Tyson, you know, super good guy, you know, and then he's got this DFAT item um, and it's, it's a dry fire aid to training. And what it does is it enables you to scope and he's got, it enables your scope to focus really close. And then he's got these pictures that are like, you know, of, of, of targetry all out of different sizes. There's no excuse not to do those alternate positions in your living room. You know what I mean? And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And that's just, that's just a fact of life. Absolutely. And that's one thing too, that, that I have, I'll call it an interesting opinion and you'll have to give me your, your reaction to this. For me, when I see, especially in the rimfire world, we get people who haven't shot before, for example. And for myself, I could tell when I first got started that I didn't have the best habits, but I didn't know what habits I should have. So for me, I, I 
studied psychology and neural pathways and learning and development and stuff like that in college. So I didn't want to develop the wrong pathways. So I sort of procrastinated on doing a lot of dry firing until I took a class with someone who could point out to me what a lot of my mistakes were going to be. And I did live fire at the range and live fire practice at the range. And I did do the one thing that you can do is build your positions and get better at building positions and reducing your wobble. I think that that's all stuff that's really obvious, but when you're new without the punishment of missing a shot, uh, you know, unless you're able to be confident in your ability to call whether or not a dry fire shot was a hit or a miss, you might be reinforcing some bad habits and you'd be better off taking a class early on if you're, if you're going to take this seriously, than to do a whole lot of dry fire to try to get better. That's, that's my thought behind that. But what's your reaction to that, Jacob? Oh, you're exactly right. Those neural pathways that you build them positively, they can also be built negatively. And so that you're, you're a thousand percent correct on that. I mean, you have to, what do they say? Um, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So that's, that's where that comes from. And so you have to do it right. And it, and just practicing that stuff, you know, knowing, you know, what you're doing. I mean, even on the dry fire, you know, that, that reticle will tell you if it was a good shot or not. You know what I mean? You don't really need live fire on it. Um, but I mean, you also, also live fire confirms what you've learned in dry fire, but uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you can certainly build bad neural pathways. And one of the ways that I talk about it is during the class is the first day we have a fundamentals evaluation and I watch everybody shoot. And so I'll, I'll run through it. Okay. <clears throat> and pretty much if I watch somebody shoot and watch how they're driving their fundamentals, I really don't even need to look at their target anymore. I know what their target's going to look like. I know that there's going to be, you know, either too tall or too wide, or sometimes a combination of both. If it's diagonal, you're doing everything wrong. That looks like my target. But uh, whenever we go out there and after that, we'll come in, we'll do our fundamentals lecture and we'll talk about it. And then we'll start going to just get really good zeros on the rifles. And whenever we do that, invariably someone will go out there and they'll have a pretty good group, you know, but then there's going to be one that's outside of it and, or sometimes two. And I just say, Hey, look on these, you have to be intellectually honest with yourself. You knew it was a bad shot before you pulled the trigger. I mean, that microsecond before the trigger broke, you knew it was a bad shot, but you did it anyway. Well, that's an example of building a bad neural pathway. Because if you go up there and, and again, our game is not groups. You know, there's been trust for that. Our, our game is not groups at all. The reason we shoot groups is one, to zero rifle, and two, to test our fundamentals. And it, 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 there's no two ways about it. So if you go up and you say, all right, that shot went out and you have to really think, did you knew, know it was a bad shot after you saw that it printed badly? The answer is invariably no. You knew that before you broke the trigger. At that point, come off the trigger, you know, raise the bolt, go get a glass of water if you need to, come back, reset. So every single time that you pull that trigger, it was an absolutely perfect shot. We bad, uh, the guys who build all the bags and everything else, they made up a t-shirt and it was a quote that I had had a long time ago. And on the back when it said, treat every shot as if it's the last shot you're ever gonna make, you know? And it's kind of like, if this is gonna, if, if I'm gonna make this shot and then I'm gonna roll over dead, I want that shot to be absolutely perfect. And that it, it's up to you to do that. It's up to you to be intellectually honest with yourself and say, okay, I'm in the middle of this string and this one's just not right. Don't pull the trigger because that's an example of building a negative neural pathway. Yeah. I did something that I suggest to, to new shooters as well. When you're going through and you're doing practice at the range, as an example, if you miss, stop everything you're doing. 
start your practice session over. And this is something that I do at the start of matches too, to help with the jitters is I'll run it through a stage in my head and I'll actually live fire it from the zero range. So, you know, depending on what I have available to me, I'll come up with what the course of fire would be. But if I do something wrong or I don't pull the trigger properly or whatever the case is, I stop everything I'm doing. I reset everything. I'll reload my magazines and walk away for a minute. And then I'll do it again because that first first stage execution, which is actually before the match even starts, I want it to be perfect. And I want to set myself up for success. And I want to build that confidence in myself that I know what I'm doing and I, I can execute. So I think that's really important to consider when you're when you're trying to build yourself up and practice and reinforce the right things. I think it's it's good to make sure that you're doing all of the motions properly. And if you if you don't, to your point, Jacob, take a step back, take, you know, take a break, walk away for a minute, get set back in the right mindset, and then approach it again. Yeah. And there is, you know, a, a thing that shooters can do if, if you're not able to just take that quick break. Um, a thing that shooters can do, which I've seen a lot, is you can think yourself right down the toilet too. You know what I mean? So you got to kind of take this, take it easy with this. And, you know, you have to allow yourself time to learn the fundamentals. It's going to be say, okay, you go and have a fundamentals lecture and then that's it. And it's like I, another, I was telling you earlier, we had a lot of private instructions lately. And one of the guys came in and he had been to, he had been to like five other classes. And um, I said, all right, so we did the fundamentals evaluation and everything else. It was just he and I. And then I come in here and I start talking about the fundamentals of marksmanship. And two hours later, when I finish, he says, I'm just going to write you a check right now. He says, I've gotten everything that I needed to know out of this class. I said, no, we're going to the range because if you don't apply them correctly, you're going to have negative reinforcement on your learning, which is a taser. <laughs> so he, uh, we shot the rest of the day and it was just, it was just fantastic, but he had never, I, I guess, I guess it was so good because whenever you're in a class, like you can sit and talk about the fundamentals all you want, but whenever you're in a class and I look at a student and I say one thing about the fundamentals, I can kind of tell, you know, if that bounced off their head or if it went in and if it didn't go in, I can move a little bit to the, to the right and say the exact same thing using different words. And then that's the way they learn. So what I'm saying is allow yourself time to learn these things because, and don't beat yourself up about it. You know what I mean? And like, like what you said, if you need to step back, take a break, step back, take a break. Nothing wrong with that. Definitely. We, uh, we frequently now yell at each other to keep breathing. Um, yep. people yell at me to follow through per, per my request, um, which is a good reminder. So it's, it's good to have some accountability partners. I'll call them as right. well with that kind of stuff, but yeah, it does take time. It takes a lot of repetition, uh, and it takes, it takes a lot of focused control, thinking about everything that you're doing, which is why I recommend doing one at a time, focus on one fundamental at a time until you're confident and you have those neural pathways built. Agreed. Agreed. And a lot of times, you know, the, the, the value of, of taking a class, you know, like I can, I can run through a real cliff notes version, you know, of the, uh, of the fundamentals of, of marksmanship. And it's like, you, you'll go in and someone say, all right, you either go to a class and an instructor tells you this, or you're out shooting with your buddies and your buddy tells you, Hey, get your natural point of aim. Okay. Well, to a new shooter, what the hell does that mean? You know what I mean? And then another thing is, if I do know what it means, if I'm fortunate enough to know what it means, then how do I test it? And so I always ask the classes, you know, give me a definition of natural point of aim. 
And so people will start talking and say, well, it's, you know, where the rifle sits, you know, with no undue influence and all this other stuff. And I just tell them, dude, you're putting me to sleep. It's got to be something that's quick and easy to understand. And the what we use at rifles only is weapon pointed to the target, body pointed to the weapon. Okay. So what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that that weapon is where it's going to be to hit the target. And you're approaching that without having any undue influence that's going to influence the rifle right, left, up, or down. So again, the natural point of aim, weapon pointed to the target, body pointed to the weapon. Let's say I've got that. Well, good, but how do I know that I have it? You know, how is, how is it some way that I know I have a good natural point of aim? Well, you have to have a methodology to test that natural point of aim. And what we say is, and it's not, well, we're not the only ones. Um, first, put the reticle where you want the bullet to go. Then close your eyes, go through a couple breathing cycles, open it. If it's not there, move your rifle and the body as one unit to put the reticle where you want the bullet to go. Don't try to muscle the gun because if you muscle the gun, it's just gonna go right back to where it was anyway. And then once you have that, then a fine test, that's a gross test. A fine test is a simple dry fire. And everybody who's dry fired their rifles will look at that reticle and it'll just like, as soon as it goes click, it moves like about an inch, you know, right, left, up or down. Well, what that rifle just told you was where it was naturally aligned. And so that point there, get the, move your body and the rifle as one unit, get it back to where you want the bullet to go then start the gross test again. And once you get this to where every time you're pulling the trigger, that reticle is not moving at all, two choices, load the gun and shoot it or get up and go get some water, kick the gun, come back and do it again. Best choice, get up, go get some water, kick the gun, come back and do it again. Because the more times you repeat this, those neural pathways become innate. And whenever they become innate, it gets to the point to where you don't have to test for natural point of aim anymore because your body knows how to do it. Just like you don't have to think about with your right hand hitting your mouth with the toothbrush. It's exactly the same thing. For sure. We do, we do a lot of wide target transition stage design in our matches just exactly to test that. So maybe you're not moving positions, but you're, you're going way off to the left and then way off to the right with your, with your aim. And something that I watch a lot of people do wrong is they will get themselves set up properly with a good natural point of aim on the first target. But instead of, you know, kind of lifting and resetting their whole position, they'll mm -hmm. just pivot the gun and mm -hmm. kind of twist their body and they yep. don't, they don't realize what they're doing and they're completely destroying that natural point of aim that they had set up initially. So I think, you know, that's a really good, good thing to share with people. Um, really helpful. It was helpful for me as well to start, especially with my dry fire, because I had a hard time being honest with myself. I think my, my ADHD brain has a hard time registering what's happening down, down the scope. So with the dry fire, I think until last summer, I could not figure out if my reticle was moving or not. And then all of a sudden I started seeing the snap happen that you're describing and mm -hmm. it, and it clicked for me. So now I can watch for it. Now I know what I'm looking for and it sounds silly, but to me, you know, with, without having that, that was, uh, it was a huge struggle to, to try to be honest. Cause you know, Justin will be working with me and he'd say, okay, did you hit it? And I was like, I think I did. I don't know. I, it felt like probably I did. <laughs> so that's really good, good advice for people to do that. Natural point of aim is huge. I started hitting stuff that I had no idea I had the ability to hit after I, right. I got that down. So definitely important stuff. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the most basic building block of, of any good position is going to be a good natural point of aim. Like you say, you have those, those targets that have a, a good distance between them and you get set up on that first one. And then whenever you're muscling the gun over to hit the next one, what you're basically doing is we are sitting there and the spring that is in your spine and in your core is relaxed on your first shot. 
and then you're putting tension on that spring and it's always going to want to spring back to its natural position which means like you say you just screwed up your natural point of aim completely because that word natural is where you know that's where it's at and uh you know that testing like i told you all about testing natural point of aim i told you that you know you do it in two different ways but then whenever you're going to alternate positions there's another way that you can test it and that is making sure that your wobble you have equal error all around the impact the intended impact point so if you're all of your error is on the right side then you know you, your natural point of aim is off to the right don't try to time that you know what i mean because it's just not going to work and just build those positions to where that wobble you know you have equal error on all sides and then keep working it keep building those positions and that wobble will get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's like i said it's not even going to be off the target anymore for sure well, there's one other topic that I wanted to talk uh, to you specifically about, because I know it, it's something that I am passionate about. I know it's something that you're passionate about and that's safety. So especially for, for this audience being in the rimfire world, a lot of new shooters coming in to this area. Um, what can you say about the state of safety in our sport right now and what you think we really need to focus on to get better? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is while we're sitting here talking, I'm getting ready to send you a naughty picture uh -oh. and let me know when it comes in and whenever you get that this one is just um Oof. ah yeah yep. see what i mean and that one certainly Ouch. is not fatal you know oh, that's yeah. not a fatal round um i have a, my own podcast and it's called the rifles only accuracy podcast and um we had we were fortunate i had a doctor who was on he's a, a director of emergency medics medicine in new orleans and he made something he made a comment that was very interesting because i asked him about the difference between rifle wounds and handgun wounds and that naughty picture i just sent you that was hand versus nine millimeter so you can, nine millimeter handgun and that's kind of like i say that's a nasty picture but at any rate um he said he treats a lot of handgun wounds but no rifle wounds and the reason uh -oh. is is because whenever someone gets hit with a rifle, they're dead on sight and they don't bring dead people in for emergency medicine. They take them straight to the morgue. And I think that that's something that we really have to keep in mind. Um, <clears throat> we're around people and they're like, okay, well, you know, we're shooting 22s. You know, we're shooting 22s. You know, it's a small gun. Well, Ruth, I don't want to be hit with airsoft. I don't want to be hit with a, a paint pellet. I damn sure don't want to get hit with a 22 because if you look at it realistically, there have been more things killed with 22 long rifle than all other cartridges combined. I mean, this one's been around for a long time. It's a favorite of poachers. It's a favorite, I mean, they're cheap. It's a favorite of, you know, bad guys. Um, and so you can't say, okay, just cause it's a 22 kind of gives us license to let go of our safety. No, that's not true. And then the, the main thing about rifles and, and it's not so much with a 22, but with the center fire, what kills you is not, I mean, it could be the bullet knocks a hole in your heart, but it's the secondary wound channel because the rifle round is going through your body at a supersonic rate and you have a, a, a permanent wound channel and then you also have a temporary wound channel. And that temporary wound channel is the shock wave. And so basically you, me, everybody walking the planet, every animal walking the planet, we're mainly made out of water. You know what I mean? And that water doesn't compress. And when you get something that goes through you supersonically, what happens is it's gonna boil for a microsecond. And so whenever you see Bruce Willis on TV and he takes that AK round to the upper part of his chest and then he goes and kills 50 other bad guys, I'm sorry, Bruce was dead. He didn't make it. 
Um, it's, it's just, you know, hunters know this, you know, people in the military know this, they've seen people take these high velocity rifle rounds and it's just not pretty. And so whenever we start to look, you know, I, I, like I've told you before, I have a bad habit of Googling firearms accidents, you know, just to, and I don't recommend that to anybody because it'll make you crazy. But what happens is we, we get complacent and we don't think about what's going on. You know, y'all remember, I, I don't know if you remember, you're so much younger than me. Um, do you remember that video that came out? It was like 10 years ago, that DEA agent that was in the New York school and he shot himself in the leg. Did you ever yes. see that? Yeah. Yes, I did. So, so um, you know, and, and me and all my buddies, you know, we're, we're talking, man, what a, what a dumbass. And it's right. He was a dumbass. But then whenever you go back and you look at it, what he had done with that pistol was what he'd done every morning. You know, he loaded it, you know, he closed the slide and he forgot, you know, he thought classroom, whatever, he pulled the trigger when he wasn't supposed to, and he shot himself in the leg. Believe me, it can happen to anybody. You know, it can happen to anyone because, and probably us more often because, you know, we're, we're around guns all the time, so we're comfortable with them. And like that, when people say, okay, well, all right, and I'll ask you, Ruth, do you, do you cook? I do. You do cook. Okay. So that means you slice up vegetables and meats in your kitchen and everything else. When's the yep. last time you nicked your finger? Like last week. <laughs> okay. When was the time before that? Oof, I don't even remember. But did it happen before that? Or was that the first time it ever happened? No, it happened before that. Okay. How come it happened a second time? Because you knew that you could cut your finger and you knew you didn't like it. You knew that you started to bleed and you knew that it hurt, but yet you went off and you did it a second time. Okay. Yep. okay. It happens to all of us. I, I can say the exact same thing. I've, done, I've just cut my fingers like three days ago in the kitchen. But what happens is if we think, okay, the knife is a deadly weapon if used incorrectly. All right, but let's say that not the last time that you cut your finger, but the time before that, it wasn't a knife, but you actually shot yourself. Do you think you would have done it again? I hope not. I would hope not too. But the thing about it is, is the, the reason that you cut your finger in the kitchen, Ruth, is because you were complacent. You know, I'll just let your, let your concentration go somewhere else for half a second. Fortunately, it's a nick on the finger. You know, no harm, no foul, Band-Aid. We move on down the road. Within a week, it's fine. But whenever that happens with a firearm, we don't have that sort of um, luxury. You know, it, the damage is much worse. And so we kind of constantly be aware of what we're doing, especially because you know, a lot of times we're seeing so many new people come into the sport, both both center fire as well as rim fire. And what a lot of these people don't understand is that we are playing a game with an instrument that from its inception was designed for one purpose, and that was to kill. You know, and I, I always say it in my safety meetings. I say, you know, the Chinese did not invent gunpowder so that we could have pretty lights in the sky. We They invented gunpowder to kill. And now things have become awesomely efficient at it and which means that we've got to be awesomely careful i mean you cannot be thinking about something else whenever you're playing a game with an item that was never designed to play a game with it and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it i love to compete i love to put on competitions i love the people that i meet i like bringing new people in and there's nothing wrong with competition but we have to be careful we have to be very careful because it is an instrument of, and I hate to be dramatic, but it's an instrument of death and no one can argue with that. I mean, that's why these things were made in the very beginning. And it's like, you know, the, the rule number two, never cover anything with a muzzle you're not willing to destroy and take full responsibility for that action. That, that picture I just sent to you was a break of rule number two. He covered his hand and he ended up getting shot. Well, I will tell you something, Ruth, and this is something that you can really take to the bank. The less you have a muzzle pointed at you, the less you get shot. 
you get shot a lot less if you don't have a muzzle pointed at you. And if you're the one who points the muzzle at you, and I always, I always, I always lose my my mind when people rest the the uh, muzzle of the firearm on their foot, you know, because if you would like, and I'm sure you wouldn't, but I can send you another picture right now on the result of that, and it doesn't look any better than the first picture I sent you. And so we we've got to say, you know, it's like the the whole thing. Me and Lindy have gone over this time and time again, and and people send me. You know, and constantly my phone they know how passionate i am about safety and i get pictures sent like that all the time or just stories that they wrote in text messages hey this is what happened you know be aware of this uh you know safety lever on ak-47 we saw one just go off you know it's kind of you know we got to constantly be aware of what's going on but like rule number one all guns are always loaded and will be treated as such all right so i i, I know for a fact that if i pulled my glock out okay and i i took it apart. You know, I took the magazine off, extra bullet out, uh, stripped it down. I got a slide barrel receiver. I mean, that gun's not loaded. I mean, it's not even functional. And I can pick up any of those pieces and throw it at you in the unlikely event that I hit you, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to kill you. But what happens is, you know, and you can tell because we're on Zoom, you know, I talk with my hands a lot. So the next thing you know, I'm going to be picking up the receiver of that pistol and I'm going to be waving it around the room, but it's okay because it's not even together. And then the next thing you know, okay, the pistol's gonna be together, but it's locked to the rear. And the next thing you know, I'm in a classroom talking to a bunch of kids and I shoot myself in the leg. You know what I mean? It's like one thing leads to another, which leads to another. And we gotta constantly be aware of it. And as well as the people that we're shooting with, they need to understand the importance of it as well. Because it's like, if you come out to rifles only, every single person on site is a range safety officer. You know, And if you start to see something that you feel is unsafe, you will never, ever catch any heck for just yelling at the top of your lungs, stop, cease fire, whatever. Just make sure that anything that you see, like that could potentially be an unsafe thing, put a stop to it right then, address it, get it out of the way so that everybody's exactly on the same page. I mean, this is, this is something that it's not if Ruth, it's when, you know, and, and the thing about it is, that is just a, a fact of life. You know, anything that can happen given enough time will happen. And so that's why all of us, I mean, the first thing be before the fundamentals, before the badass guns that we buy, before the badass scopes, bipods, everything else, have a good mindset for safety. If you turns out that you learn about yourself that you can't be safe, go play golf. You know what I mean? No harm, no foul. I've never played golf, but shit, I'll go play golf with you. You know what I mean? Just, exactly. just to make sure that we, the, the consequences, the consequences that we have as rifle people, it, they're, they're dire, they're deadly. And as soon as we can understand that and have it really written into our brain, I mean, I make myself, you've, you've heard me in classes before, you know, whenever I check, check my dope, you know, I'll go up and I'll actually put my hand on it, make myself think of it and everything else. I do the exact same thing whenever I put my pistol on in the morning. I know exactly where the weapon's pointed. I know exactly where I can load it, that if it does have a discharge, it's going to discharge in a safe direction. No one's going to get hurt because it happens sometimes. You know what I mean? But if we're not, if we're following all the rules, remember the, there's four of them. Okay. So first is all guns are always loaded. Next one, never point the muzzle of the firearm. Be aware of your tire target in your backstop and keep your finger out of the trigger until your sights are on target. Really, you got to break two. You got to break two for something bad to happen. So that, and that's just that, that circle of safety. I didn't come up with those and I didn't say them all because you know what I'm talking about already. We've all seen them at every range that we go to. They're the same rules. They're universal. They were along before any of us were ever born, but we got to follow them. And we can't say, all right, you know, and it's, it's like I hear, 
I, I have some people come up and, and uh, they say, man, we just finished the brawl in February, man, Jacob, this is a, a really, really safe match. And I think it has something to do with, you know, your safety meetings. And I say, what in other matches, they don't have a safety meeting. He says, we've been to several that they don't. And I'm kind of like, I, I'm not going to go there and I'm not going to recommend people go there. I mean, because if you do not have, if you do not have that culture of safety, something bad is going to happen. You, it has to be culturally in you that safe weapons handling first and foremost, first and foremost, it don't matter. You go to a match and there's a hundred people in the match and you end up at 98th place and you go home without any extra holes and you didn't put an extra hole into someone. Guess what? You win. You know what I mean? <laughs> you win. I mean, you win because we have to keep in mind that there's so many people, this is not a cheap thing to get into, you know, and there's so many people that can't do it by their financial obligations, uh, work obligations, family obligations, there are so many people that would want to get into it and they just can't because there's other outside factors that are influencing that they can't do it. What that means to us, we better feel freaking lucky that we're able to do it because not everybody is so lucky. And so if it turns out that this person who hasn't been so lucky gets to the point in their life where they can actually do it, it's incumbent upon us to stress, okay, yeah, what you've seen is the glamour side, you know, but now you have to understand, here's our basic side and our most basic thing beyond fundamentals, beyond where you place is a culture of safety. I completely agree, especially in the NRL 22 world where we have a lot of youth involved and we have a lot of new shooters. We really have to stay focused on this mindset that safety comes before the competition. So we, we just, uh, through Midwest Precision Shooting, released the match director handbook that we drafted. And we threw a video out on YouTube about this as well. But one of the areas that we really stress as match directors is, you know, our, our ultimate goal is first to have a safe match, mm -hmm. second to have a fair match, and third to have a fun match. And if you fall mm -hmm. in that order, then you can get to the next pieces. But you can't have a fun match if you don't have a fair match, and you can't have a fun and fair match if you don't have a safe match. So to focus first on safety I think is, is paramount. And I've, I have, I've been to, to ranges where the safety brief is, oh yeah. And you know, don't point your, your gun at someone else, you know, just be, just don't do that. And you know, that they're kind of murky on the rules. We outlined now a safety brief that we actually read line by line and it outlines exactly what will happen and the consequences have to hurt. So like you said, you have to break two rules for something bad to happen, but if one rule is broken, then it needs to have dire consequences for that to be painful for that person so that we don't end up at the point where we're breaking two rules. Uh, Cause that's when bad don't things call it, Don't Ruth, don't call it to be painful for them. I mean, if you flag someone with your muzzle at rifles only, you're out of the match. It's a match DQ. It's Correct. not a painful lesson. It's a cheap lesson. Well, yes, that's a good point. It is, it is a cheap lesson, but you know, to have, I think there's some, some match directors out there that feel bad disqualifying someone. And to me, it just, is like, no, if it's, if it's, oh, you get a verbal warning, a verbal warning when you're dealing with something um, like a firearm in the scenarios that we're dealing with them, it's, it's just not enough in my opinion. So I, I agree with you. I think it, it has to be uh, more extreme than that. And I think that people have to be really focused on it, especially when we're throwing a new, a new sport at somebody. And, you know, that's, it, it is one of the reasons why though, I think that, you know, learning a firearm this is a, a relatively safe environment to learn firearms when we're dealing with long rifles because of 
the ability for someone nearby to grab that muzzle and keep it pointed in a safe direction. If something, if someone starts moving it in an unsafe direction, it's a little bit easier for a parent to help with the muzzle control when you're dealing with a, a younger kid and things like that. So I, I do think that we can create a safe environment for people to be exposed to firearms, um, but we just have to make it a huge priority. It's just got to be number one. I agree with you. It, it can be, it can be very, very safe. But the only way it's going to be very, very safe is that culture of safety. And that has to be stressed from the get go. And and you're right. You know, whenever you're exactly right. And those those words that that you said, not the brawl this last time in February, but the time previous, um, I, I just those are the exact words I used. First, we're going to it's going to be safe. Then it's going to be fair. Then it's going to be fun. Y'all hit the nail on the head on that one. And that and the thing about it is, is that can you really have fun? If you go to a place and that culture of firearm safety is non-existent, not me, man, I'm worried about, I'm going to get shot. You know what I mean? Me too. <laughs> so me too. I want the new people to come in and it's, it's the way I've explained it. You know, when someone says, okay, um, you, you have a, a, a youth, you know, 16, 15, whatever the case may be. And they really want to get into the shooting thing. Okay. So the parent looks at it and says, well, if I get him, her, my child into this, I'm talking, this is, a, this is a minimum of 2,500 bucks, you know, to, to get this. By the time I get equipment, scope, everything else, and then say, why don't we go and watch one of these things first to begin with? And then if they go to a place that has a culture of safety, well, the parent's going to feel more comfortable with their child in that environment. But if they go to a place that does not have a culture of safety, they'll probably steer their child towards something else. And that would cost us having a potentially great shooter in the community. Because the parent made a decision, you know, I walked into this range and I was covered with the muzzle, you know, 15 times in one hour. Uh, I don't want them covering my child with a muzzle because I know what comes out the end, you know. And so then they push them towards another sport. And who loses out? Our shooting community loses out you know, because the, the parent made a decision, which was the right decision, you know, to steer them towards something else. Because you, you, I mean, that's their child, you know, and 100%. ultimately that's what they're going to do is they're going to protect their child and I don't blame them. And so what does that mean? That means all of our sponsors out there that are putting prizes on the table, they have one less person that's out buying their gear. You know what I mean? All the, it just, it trickles down. Everyone loses. If we can bring someone in to where they feel safe, they have fun, they get better. Every single facet of the industry is going to benefit from that you know, from rifle manufacturers, scopes, bipods, rear bags, whatever the case may be. Hell, even the hotel rooms that people use whenever they travel to go to, out of state to go to matches or training. Everybody loses. The, the firearms community lost another person. In today's climate, we can't afford to lose even one. And so something to think about. Definitely, definitely agree there. We, we really, this, this sport is um, the future of the sport is dependent on being able to get new people in, especially the younger people. And, and like you said, sponsors, you know, getting, getting stuff on the prize tables from that to, you know, just having additional positive community members. That's huge. So hopefully we can refocus on that and, and get people back in that mindset. And for the most part, most of the, the matches that I've gone to, that's really been uh, a serious thing. It's just felt like, you know, from year one where that was primary, you know, front of stage for people to year two that I was shooting to year three, I was shooting. It felt like maybe we were getting a little lax here and there. So I think, you know, bringing this up and bringing it up often and talking about it frequently is, is a huge, huge factor. Agreed. 
Agreed. So any final thoughts you have, Jacob, because the next section I want to do is um, if you're willing to stay on, help me answer some questions from our listeners. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, um, no, we'll do it at the end. Let's go, let's go into questions, then we'll do it. All right, sounds good. Perfect. Uh, so the, the first question we have is from Teresa Jurish, and she wants to know chassis versus stock. What's the difference? Do you want to tackle it or you want me to do it? You go for it. Okay. Uh, stocks and well, stocks nowadays, you know, they're, they're, um, it depends on what you define as a stock. You could go like the, the more traditional, you know, the, the like hunting stocks, you know, the wooden hunting stocks or even the fiberglass hunting stocks, you know, you can get those and, you know, with removable butt spacers, you can also get them with adjustable cheek pieces, but what you don't really get with that is you don't get the modularity to where you can add things out or, you know, you can put on uh, clip on night vision or clip on thermal up in the front like you can typically really easy with a chassis or anything that you would put on the side of your chassis if you choose to put weights on the side of your gun it's super super easy with a chassis a chassis is a little bit more um, user friendly you know you can set it up more towards yourself um, there's absolutely zero difference in accuracy between the two I mean both of those guns you know you can if you take a a Remington 700 action and you put it in the, the stock that it came in you know the whatever the fiberglass one it's not going to shoot. You're not going to put it in a chassis and it's going to shoot better. You might be more comfortable shooting with a chassis because the chassis could have a little bit more adjustability to it. You know, a little bit more things where you add weights or you can move your, move your bipod around if you need to. But as far as changing the accuracy, no. And it's just going to be one of those things that is, is your preference. I know a lot of people who are just chassis people and other people who are just foundation stock people. That's it. They're just going to shoot stocks, but um, accuracy, no difference. Maybe some difference in a level of comfort, but um, it's it comes down to personal preference. Yeah, I think for me, what helped me early on uh, is I, I think of chassis as more modular and stocks as more one one piece. But like you said, stocks these days you can swap out the butt piece, you can swap out um, a, a bunch of different components to make it more customizable. Uh, so I guess that's how I and it feels like we're almost moving towards a chassis stock hybrid type model these days with some of the things that are coming out, some of the newer products. So really ultimately it's, it's personal preference and, and you could almost use those things interchangeably. That's the, the main differences. So if someone's talking about a chassis or they're talking about a stock, it really doesn't matter which one you go with. Uh, one's not better than the other, like you said, Jacob. So that's sort of how I think of it. Oh, agreed. And you know that the other ones like, you know, Terry Cross's Sentinel stock, you know, foundation stocks, you know, the Macmillan stocks, the Manor stocks, all of those are really, really super good equipment. And then you go to the chassis side of the house too, you know, the, the uh, Envy is really good MDT. There's so many ones out there that are, uh, you can't, you can't go wrong either way. It's going to be a personal preference. So the gun's not going to be more accurate, you know, whether it's sitting in a stock or in a chassis, but I think it's beautiful because when I first started, all there were were stocks, they weren't adjustable. And it was like shooting them. I mean, shooting, we thought, you know, we thought we were, you know, we were the shit, you know, but as it turns out now, you know, looking at it all these years later, the adjustability of both stocks as well as the chassis, like you said earlier, we're living in a golden age. Yeah. There's so many options out there and, and too many things, too many things to try them all. It feels like, but it's, it's fun. It's certainly fun to try too. Uh, okay. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so our next question is from Mitch Tromberg and he wants to know, on a hit to move target, what should the spotter call if the shooter misses? Should they call miss, re-engage, or just say nothing? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. 
we, whenever we have matches down here, the uh, we're very fortunate. We've got a set of range officers that have been with us for years. And uh, we open up Harriet Rifles only during a match. We'll open up seven ranges at a time. And it's like the, the personality of the, of the, of the range officer, you know, it's, it's kind of like what they think. I, I, I never really, I never really thought to kind of standardize that. We have, we have one guy who's out here now, Chad. And so whenever he's on the range and you, you've seen rifles only before, you know, it's not all just compact. You can be spread out all over the place. Well, he is, he's like the biggest cheerleader. I mean, whenever someone gets a hit, he yells out impact at the top of his lungs and you can hear it all over, all over the range. And then when someone misses, he's like, Oh, try again. <laughs> I mean, it kind of adds a little bit to it. Uh, I could see, I could see where you might want to standardize that, you know, and say, okay, we're if you miss, you don't say anything. If you hit, you stay impact. Um, but I don't know. I've seen it done a lot of different ways, and I mean, I, I really wouldn't. I mean, if it was standardized or it needed to be standardized, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have anything, any problem with that at all. Yeah, I think for some of our matches, um, when we when we have our larger matches, they're ROed. Uh, we have ROs at every stage. So we communicate with the ROs to do it consistently all day and then to communicate it in advance, which I think is the more important piece, right? So letting the shooter know what to expect so that if it's a hit to move stage, they know whether or not they should be moving on. So having yeah. someone, you know, if you're going to call re-engage, make sure that you're calling re-engage all day for everybody and that you let people know in advance. If you miss, I'm going to tell you to re-engage. That means to re-engage the target until you hit it. So I think yeah. that's really the more important piece. I think the, the one common thread is not to call miss, because if you call the word miss, sometimes it can sound like hit and that leads to more confusion. So I would suggest that you either say nothing or you say something like re-engage. So that'd that'd be my that suggestion. Nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, mostly just level set with people so that they know what to expect. Yeah. Um, so here's one of, my, one of my favorite questions I've gotten so far. This is from Tim Ho. And he wants to know, and I'm, I'm interested actually to hear your answer to this one, Jacob, what's the hardest prop you've had to shoot off of and why? The hardest prop that I've had to shoot off of, I didn't have to shoot off of it during a competition, but I designed the prop and I did, I proofed it. And, um, it was, it was off of a whiskey barrel and the whiskey barrel was up and you're know, shooting it. It was on its side, but you know how whiskey barrels are not flat they're kind of, you know, uh, they kind of right? have a curve to them. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, that one was pretty, that one was pretty difficult. You know, proofing that one was pretty difficult. Uh, I have shot off of the ones that are the platforms that are on the four chains. Um, those are another one that I'm, I'm not a fan of just because I'm not any good at them. Um, <laughs> I think probably we did another one down here and we did one at rifles only. It was right after the, right after that Maersk, uh, this Navy SEALs went and got the pirates off. And we actually, in our pond, you actually had to shoot from the boat. And uh, I think it was very hard. However, proofing that one, I proofed it all day because it was so much fun. But, um, <laughs> you know, as far as, the, as far as the props that are the hardest, I don't know. What we do down here at, at Rifles Only is all of our props are, are pretty well permanent. You know, it's, our barricades are not, you know, portable barricades. A lot of places have portable barricades and those aren't very stable. Uh, but you can get to where you can build a position that gets you really stable, even on a portable barricade. But I would say probably the whiskey barrel or that, you know, that uh, that platform that's on chains. Those are those are pretty difficult because recoil starts to come into play and everything else. Yeah. What about you? I, I, I learned uh, the first time I shot off of a moving platform hanging from chains was in a, in an X match. And I realized, well, I didn't realize at the time. 
I run my bolt pretty hard on my 22. So I didn't have a lot of recoil, but I was moving that thing pretty good anyway. <laughs> so yeah. those ones are, are pretty tough. Um, the, the hardest one for me is probably the T post. So you, you get a lot of left, right movement and you get a lot of up, down movement. And so I find those to be, depending on how tall they are and, um, how far in the ground they are, I find those to be definitely challenging. So if you're going to practice something and you want to practice centering up your wobble, those are a perfect, uh, perfect tool. And they're, they're pretty cheap and, and easy to get. So you can throw it in your backyard too, most of the time. Yep. You're right. Any other questions? <laughs> no, that's all we've got for today. So okay. if anyone would like to uh, have us answer one of your questions on the next podcast, email us podcast at nrl22.org. So other than that, cool. Jacob, what's, what do you have for final thoughts for us? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I always enjoy visiting with you. Um, I really, really, I, I know that you guys up there in Minnesota, y'all have a very, very robust group of people and a robust program up there. I was able to go up there last last year. Uh, Molly's actually been down here to shoot with me and I got a chance to see her again whenever I went up there. I, I, I just, I adore her and uh, and Michelle and you and, and Brian and everybody who's up there in that area. Y'all are all really, really good people. I'm just absolutely delighted that we had the opportunity to meet and become friends. And uh, I know that we're gonna know each other for a long, long time and be sending Christmas cards when we're in our eighties. Absolutely, I hope so. I really do. Uh, thanks again so much for joining us today. I think there there were some definite things that we talked about today that I wanted to get in front of this audience and really appreciate your time and dedication to this sport. It's definitely appreciated. Um, hopefully some more people can, can get out to see you guys and see what you're all about. And this will give them a little bit of a, a picture of that. So thanks well, again so much. You don't have so to thank me, Ruth. You don't have to thank me. I told you what the deal was. I'll come on yours, but you got to come on mine. I will. I will for sure. It's that's, that's a for sure. So thanks again, Jacob, so much. And to our audience, uh, remember to keep sharing the love.